about the church, as you can tell, and you may think, I know how the church works. Um, I would encourage you, don't check out. See, what, see what's said this morning and be willing to be surprised about what the Bible says, how the church works. So let's pray and let's get into this. Father, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the time we had in worship and prayer. Thank you for your word that in, in this preaching and teaching, Lord, there is something about it that moves the heavenlies. And we thank you for that. Lord, we ask that you be with Tom. Fill him with your Holy Spirit. Give him the words to say that would speak to our hearts and change our lives. In your name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Matt. How Stuff Works is a website, by the way, that provides insight into the many ways things work. The site uses various media to explain complex concepts, procedures, and mechanisms. How Stuff Works is also a six-part sermon series right here at Central Assembly based on the book of Colossians last week. We looked at how redemption works. Today we will explore how the church works from Colossians chapter 1. You can turn there, and while you're turning there, I want to again welcome our live stream audience. I'm glad you're able to watch today. My prayer is that someday soon you'll be able to attend in person and experience the fellowship, the worship, and the prayer that we believe are so vital for a healthy Christian life. In the meantime, let's take another video foray into how something works. Today, Levi Laporte explains how anesthesia works. Let's go to the videotape. Hi, I'm Levi Laporte and I'm a certified registered nurse anesthetist and I'm here to describe how anesthesia works. Now, there are many different kinds of anesthesia from local, regional, and general anesthesia, but I'll describe general anesthesia as that's what most people think of when they get put to sleep. General anesthesia takes place when we have five A's. Anxiolysis, the loss of anxiety. Anesthesia, the loss of sensation or consciousness. Amnesia, the loss of recall or memory. Analgesia, the loss of pain. And areflexia, the loss of muscle reflexes. So most adults undergo general anesthesia. They have an IV induction and an inhalational gas maintenance. And most children have an inhalational induction and maintenance. So gas to go to sleep and gas to keep them asleep. Neurons are the cells that transmit messages from your periphery to your brain to sense pain. And that's where anesthesia takes place. Messages are sent down the neuron through the exchange of electrolytes from the inside to the outside of the body of the neuron, causing a change in the electronic charge inside the neuron. These messages are sent to the brain, where the brain makes sense of it. Most anesthetic agents work on a receptor on the end of the neuron called gamma immunobutyric acid A, or GABA. The drugs we use promote the binding of GABA to the receptor to increase the conductance of the chloride into the cell. Chloride is a negatively charged ion which causes the inside of the neuron to become extremely negatively charged. So when a stimulus, say the surgeon's scalpel, is perceived, when the neuron tries to exchange electrolytes to send the message of pain, it won't be able to propagate the message because of the very negative charge inside the cell caused by that excess of chloride. And that, in general, is how anesthesia works. Now you know why you had to go to school for years. <laughs> How Stuff Works. Central Assembly of God, 3000 Hammond Avenue 
is a local church. We are a local fellowship. Our average attendance is, is, is about 240 people. Uh, on a given Sunday, I would say we have 300 to 400 people that make up uh, our local church. That's church, little c. Central Assembly of Superior, Wisconsin, in Superior, Wisconsin, is part of the Assemblies of God. The Assemblies of God worldwide has about 69 million adherents. It's still church, little c. But every born-again believer who has set foot on planet Earth makes up the church, big C. The church, big C, is not made up of buildings or denominations. The word church, as it's used 115 times in the New Testament, is the word ecclesia, which means called out. It refers to people. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen generation. You're a, a royal priesthood. A holy nation. The church. A peculiar people. Yeah, baby. <laughs> that you should show forth the praises of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. You are called out. The church, big C, is called out. Everyone who has been called out. Everyone who's been set apart by the life-changing, life-altering, life-defining, life-moving, life-rearranging blood of Jesus Christ is part of the church, big C. Not everyone who's part of Central Assembly or any other local fellowship or any other denomination is saved. In other words, you can be a member of a local church and part of a denomination and not be saved. But everyone who's part of the church, big C, is born again. Everyone who is part of the church is saved and will one day abide in heaven if you're part of the big C. So, so that means there are people in the church, little c, who ain't in the church, Big C. Got that? But everyone in the church, Big C, is destined for glory. Our text today is Colossians 1, and I'm going to take it in parts of Colossians 1, and I'm going to take it in little sections here. Uh, and we're talking about how the church works. The first section is verses 18 and 19. It says, and he, speaking of Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. That's big C. Who is the beginning, speaking of Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him, that in Jesus, should all fullness dwell. Jesus is the head of the body. The body is the church, big C. Jesus is the head of the body. It's a metaphor, fairly easy to understand. Jesus is over the church. He is preeminent. It means that he's first in rank and first in influence. 
1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13 says, For as the body is one and has many members or parts, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, which is the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are, one, you are the body of Christ and members in particular. So we're all one body, just like you have one body, many parts, one body. Verse 18, beginning says, Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. That Jesus is the firstborn from the dead means he is the first member of the body of Christ. Before him, before Jesus, no one was born again. He is eternal, yes, and, and, and that may be an aspect of this, but he's also the beginning of the church, big C. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 says, And God has put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body is fitly joined together. Verse 19 says, It pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, should all fullness dwell. I, I don't know if you, that, that goes over my head until I think about it. It pleased the Father that in Jesus should all fullness dwell. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Everything was created by Him and for Him. He is all in all. He is complete in and of Himself. All fullness dwells in Him. That's who Jesus is. Here's another verse that will blow your mind. Colossians 2.9 For in him in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. <sighs> in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. And Jesus is the reconciler. Verses 20 through 22, back in Colossians 1, our text, it says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies, hear me now, your enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now, we were enemies of God. Let's look at how we became enemies of God and, and how we 
found ourselves in need of reconciliation. And, and at the end of that, we'll see where the church comes in. Because that's what we're talking about, how church works. Number one, so again, we're, here's, here's how we found ourselves as enemies from God. Number one, God created a perfect world. Back to the beginning. God created a perfect world. We know it as the Garden of Eden. And we still enjoy the remnants of, uh, of God's beautiful and amazing and intricate creation. It's, it's colorful and vibrant and filled with variety. It's, it's beautiful in its enormity and it's beautiful in its minuteness. The world we know now is tainted by sin, corruption, pollution, and yet it still overwhelms us with its stunning beauty. From the sunrise down on Barker's Island to the sunsets over St. Louis Bay as we view it from Billings Park to the waves crashing over the shipping channel at Canal Park during a storm. And then there's the leaves that are beginning to change all along our beautiful Northland trails. And even the beauty of a freshly fallen snow. In the winter wonderland we know as Wisconsin and Minnesota, God created a perfect world. So second, that's first. Second, he placed mankind into the mix with everything he could possibly need and more than he could possibly want. It was a perfect existence in a perfect world. In fact, the Bible says that God and man would walk together in the cool of the day. In other words, they had rich, intimate fellowship together, God and man. It was the paradise, the utopian existence we still seem to long for in our heart of hearts. Number three, the human race was left with only one restriction. In this perfect world, two trees were distinguished above all the others. The tree of life was one, but it was the other, which would lead to problems for Adam and his posterity. God had spoken with clarity. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what we often forget in that equation is that it was for their own good. It's like us telling us, it's like us telling our children not to stick their fork in the electrical outlet. It's not a cruel restriction imposed upon them to assert control or dominance. It's for their own good. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that you eat thereof, everything will change. You will surely die. When are we going to learn? When are we going to learn that God knows what He's talking about? When are we going to learn that there are ramifications for doing things our own way? 
There was then, there is now, and, and still we find ourselves prone to forging on in our own wisdom, professing ourselves to be wise. We become fools and we plan and we plot our own existence absent of the guidance of the God who made it all and knows the end from the beginning. There was one restriction. And number four, Adam violated God's command. Consequences followed. He died spiritually. In other words, he was separated from God. He began to die physically. He was expelled from the garden. And creation was cursed. A world without the constant interaction of the life giving God who created it will atrophy. The second law of thermodynamics states that in a closed system, everything winds down. Everything drifts toward chaos. We've pushed God away and, and our existence has persistently and relentlessly deteriorated ever since. Why? We violated God's instruction for a healthy and prosperous existence. The doctor tells us to exercise, lose weight, eat right, and don't smoke. We don't listen to him. We, we do it our way. Then we get sick and we look to the heavens and we say, God, why me? Maybe it's that we continue to do life our own way. Instead of listening to the one who knows what he's talking about. Let me ask you this. Are you embracing behaviors and lifestyles that you know are contrary to what God would want for you? If you are, you're, you're limiting what God can do in your life. You're choosing to operate outside, contrary to the will of God. And let me just say this, and I only say it because it's true, there are consequences for living outside of the protective and perfect and loving will of God. It's not that he's tossing lightning bolts at you from his high and lofty perch in heaven. The reality is, you're sticking your fork into the electrical outlet. To continue to live in a way that knowingly violates the will of God is to put him to a foolish test. You're eating from the tree of knowledge, of the knowledge of good and evil. You're choosing your way instead of God's way. You're compromising, you're rationalizing, you're moving yourself away from the guidance and, and outside of the protective hands of God. You're asserting independence and you're declaring your own sovereignty and that never works out well. You're proclaiming yourself as above God. You're declaring yourself to be wise, but in reality, you're a fool. You're eating from the wrong tree. 1 John 2.26 says, These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. You're being seduced by the world. I don't often 
invoke the pastor card, I will here. As your pastor, I'm telling you to stop it. Stop it. Do you hear me? Fall into line with the will of your loving Heavenly Father. Trust Him. Obey Him. Accept the fact that He knows more than you. Accept the fact that what He desires for you is better than what you desire for yourself. Submit to His will. Fall under His protective authority for your own good. Adam sinned. He chose not to follow the ways of God and and literally there was hell to pay. He became an enemy of God. Romans 5.10 clearly states that until we are reconciled unto God, we are still enemies of God. So in spite of God creating a perfect world for our enjoyment, we decided we would do things our own way. This ostracized us. This separated us from God. James 4.4 says, Friendship with the world is enmity. Friendship with the world is hostility with God. But instead of abandoning us, he could have. But he chose to send Jesus to redeem us. That's why Christianity matters. Can I just say that? In this era of tolerance, people want to say, and I actually had somebody say this to me not too long ago, within the last couple of weeks, it doesn't really matter as long as you believe something. And that's a lie out of the pit itself. The reality is, God sent His only begotten Son to die on a cross so that our sins could be atoned for. And then we have the audacity to say it doesn't matter what we believe. It absolutely matters. To believe all roads lead to heaven or all roads lead to God is an affront to God's plan for redemption, which is Christianity, church, big C. There's only one way to heaven and it runs through the provision that God ordained and supplied for us to attain the righteousness necessary for salvation. Whosoever denies the Son, 1 John 2 says, the same has not the Father. And he that acknowledges the Son has the Father as well. People want to believe it's like a mountain. And all roads up the mountain lead to the top. The reality is it's like a maze. And only one path leads to the center. And every other path is a dead end. That's why we have to submit to His will and to His way. Our own way is a dead end. We need God's way. He's God. I'm not And apart from him, I'm an enemy of God. Jesus came to be the reconciler. That's how church works. In these next few verses now, 26 through 28, 
we get an interesting word used more than once. It, it's the word mystery. C- can I ask you to really, really listen to me, to, to really listen carefully? Because I could lose you here. I got people walking out now. <laughs> can I ask you to, to really engage in this? I, I find this fascinating Whether or not you find this fascinating is another story. I found it ironic. We talked about anesthesia. Verse 26. Okay, so so again, in these these next three verses, 26 to 28, we're going to encounter the word mystery. Okay? Even the mystery, verse 26 says, which has been hid from ages and from generations, but is now made manifest to the saints. I mean, that we should be fascinated and really curious as to know what this is. Verse 27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now, it speaks of more than, than just the mystery of a God we, we can't comprehend. The word mystery here is a specific term that addresses a specific action. So, so hang with me here. You, if, if you want to understand the Bible, you have to understand this. You have to realize that as the New Testament unfolds, we're viewing it, they were viewing it from a very Jewish perspective. Life had a very Jewish perspective in the Bible. That's the world, that's the culture that God chose to work in and work through. And it all started back when God decided he was going to work through one man. And that man was Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob's son, Joseph, was sold into Egypt as a slave. But he miraculously rose to second in power over the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, the nation of Egypt. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, allowed Joseph then, who had risen in power, to bring his family to Egypt to preserve them during a time of great famine. So Joseph's father, his brothers, their wives, and their children relocated in the land of Goshen in the midst of Egypt. Over the years, they they multiplied tremendously as God's hand of blessing rested upon the Hebrew people as they dwelt in a strange land. Over time, and as generations passed, 400 years to be exact, a Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph. The descendants of Abraham were now so prolific that they were becoming a threat to the government of Egypt. So the new Pharaoh began to severely oppress the descendants of Abraham through slavery and by aborting all the male babies. You know the story. God raises up Moses and Moses unionized the workers and eventually they walked off the job, so to speak. 
It's a fascinating mental image to me. These 70 souls enter Egypt after Joseph's rise to power. And then some 400 years later, a nation emerges. Literally millions of people depart via the Exodus. It's as though Egypt gave birth to the nation of Israel. The infant nation wandered in the wilderness of Sinai for 40 years before settling into the promised land, a land provided for them by God, a land that would become known as Israel. And through the centuries and over time, this miraculous beginning and this rich heritage was frequently celebrated and became ingrained in the hearts and the lives of, of the Israelites. They became very Jewish, very orthodox, very legalistic, very regimented, very traditional, very slow to change. And those are all understatements. This is the world the New Testament is born into. This is where Jesus finds himself. And he's about to introduce a concept as he begins his ministry. A concept that's so radical, so outside the box, so fundamentally distressing that it would not just rock the boat, it capsized. It was so outside the conventional way of thinking that the Bible refers to it as a mystery. It's the idea of Jews and Gentiles becoming one. Gentiles are all the non-Jews. And Jesus was about to make both one. Now, it's hard for us to grasp how significant this is, but it is. And if you read Acts 10, you can, you can get another, uh, an idea of how significant it is. Jesus, by the time we get to Acts 10, Jesus has already died on the cross and ascended into heaven. And we find this guy named Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile, a non-Jew. He's a military officer, and he's living in Caesarea. And he has a dream in which God tells him to send for Peter, a Jew who was staying in Joppa at the house of Simon the Tanner, a little more than a day's journey away. Peter, meanwhile, is waiting for lunch on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner's house. They had flat roofs in those days and in those part, that part of the world. And Peter falls into a trance. And in the trance, a vision is repeated to him three times for emphasis. Whenever things are repeated in the Bible, whenever things happen more than once, it's for emphasis. The vision that Peter has is of non-kosher, unclean, food that is expressly prohibited in this orthodox Jewish world. The food is lowered before Peter. And a voice says, Peter, rise and eat. 
Peter, a good Orthodox Jewish man, refuses vehemently each time until finally the voice says, don't call unclean what I have cleansed. As he comes out of the vision, there's a knock on the door. It's the Gentile men sent by Cornelius from Caesarea and they ask Peter to come and preach the gospel to the Gentiles at the house of Cornelius. It's then that Peter realizes his vision wasn't really about food. It was about Jews and Gentiles. It was about the mystery of the two becoming one. It was about not calling unclean what God had cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ. We can see it now. But to the Jewish world of the Gospel writers, this was a great mystery. But from the beginning... God's plan was to save the entirety of the human race held captive by the devil after the sin of Adam. When the Jews rejected Jesus the Messiah, God grafted in the Gentiles. The two, Jews and Gentiles, would become one under the teachings of the Apostle Paul. This was the mystery once hidden, now revealed. Ephesians 3 Paul talking, he puts it this way, how that by revelation he made known unto me, unto Paul, the mystery. As I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge, Paul says, in the mystery of Christ. Which in other ages, before this, before the church age, in the Old Testament, even during the time of Jesus, was not understood, was not made known, but is now revealed unto the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What's the mystery? It's in verse 6 of Ephesians 3. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ. How? By the Gospel. It's the church. Big C. Whereof I was made a minister, Paul says, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of His power. Unto me, Paul says, who am less than the least of all the saints in this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which is from the beginning of the world has been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, speaking of Jesus, it says, For He is our peace who made both one. There's lots of language like this in the Bible, and I think we just read over it. We don't think about it. But He made both one. What's He talking about? Jews and Gentiles, and he's broken down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile, having abolished 
in his flesh, the enmity, the hostility, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man. What's the one new man? It's the body of Christ. Big C. This is so cool. How did he do it? By the cross, it says in the Bible. Having slain the enmity thereby. Verse 17. And came and preached peace unto you which were afar off, the Gentiles, and to them that were near, the Jews. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Both Jew and Gentile have access to one Father by way of the Spirit through Jesus. Now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and saints, and you are of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. If you're talking about a building, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. If you're talking about a body, Jesus is the head. Jesus is preeminent. That's how the church works. Now think about this. Egypt, and Egypt is always a picture of the world in the Bible, okay? So Egypt is always a picture of the carnal, sinful, natural world. So Egypt gives birth to the nation of Israel, right? Seventy come in. A gestation period. And a nation emerges, gives birth to the nation of Israel. And the world gave birth to the church. The word church means called out. You are called out of the world. It began with a few. It began with a handful. A gestation period. And he gives birth to a a holy nation. A chosen people. And that's you. Jesus is the reconciler. He bridges the gap between a holy God and you. Through Jesus, we have access by the Spirit to the Father. The purpose of the local church, then, the church little c, is to build the body of Christ, which is the church big C. And my greatest concern and my greatest desire is not that you attend Central Assembly, but that you are reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ and become part of his body, the church, Big C. Would you pray with me? Lord, there was... There was different roads to take back then. Adam had a choice and he made it. 
And then back in the days of Jesus, people had a choice and they made it. Here we are today. We stand at the fork in the road. There's our way and there's your way. And we can fool ourselves. We can say, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. It's not what the Bible teaches. We can choose your plan. We can choose the the atonement that you provided. So Lord, if there's one here today, if maybe there's one that's listening via the live stream, today they would recognize that it does matter what you believe. Of course it does. And so today we choose Jesus, the one who came to make Jew and Gentile one, the one who came to make us part of the body of Christ. While every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if you're here this morning and and you're recognizing that you need Jesus, would you just slip up your hand for me so that I can include you in in our closing prayer? If that's you, would you slip up your hand? You need Jesus this morning. Doesn't mean you're joining our church. That's little c. But by slipping up your hand, you're becoming a part of the church. Big c. I see that hand. God bless you. Anyone else today? Lord, we repent of our sins. We recognize we've chosen our own way. And today we choose your way. It's the path less traveled, for sure. It's the narrow path. But we recognize this morning that it leads to life. Thank you, Lord, for sending your only begotten Son into the world, that whosoever would believeth on him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. And that's how the church works. In Jesus' name.